everybody, this is Rafe Telsch, and this is episode 58 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. You know, I'm really enjoying this uh, children's movie theme that I put together for December. Uh, Again, a lot of it was happenstance, just ended up with the right selection of movies coming in at the right time. But these were just great movies to revisit. Last week, getting to watch a Muppet movie, and as I said, I'm just such a huge fan of the Muppets. And this week, to get an animated movie that should be a classic, and I think people who have seen it feel like it is a classic, but is still largely unappreciated, and that is 1999's The Iron Giant. And just the other day, I was looking on, I believe it was Reddit, and there was a picture of the Funko Pop of The Iron Giant, uh, which was made, of course, for Ready Player One, the movie. So the box, instead of saying The Iron Giant, I mean, it has the the name of the character as The Iron Giant, but what it's from, instead of coming from The Iron Giant, it's coming from Ready Player One, and there were a lot of people up in arms that it wasn't getting credit for being from its own movie, that it was from something else. And I think that, that really kind of illustrates just how under appreciated this film is. We all recognize the character, but have you actually seen the movie? And that's actually a crisis I go through over the course of this episode when I was originally watching the movie was, had I seen this movie before, as familiar as I was with it, and as many times as I recommended it, I honestly cannot remember if I had seen this movie before I sat down to re-watch it, or maybe watch it for the first time, for the podcast. It is definitely a film worth watching. I highly recommend it. Of course, listen to my conversation this week with guest Perry Wilson. Uh, We have a fantastic conversation about this movie. Lots to talk about, including how this may have had some influence on one of the biggest action popcorn movies in recent years. And that's definitely a connection worth taking a listen for. So here's my conversation with Perry Wilson. We're talking about 1999's The Iron Giant. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you're enjoying your holiday season so far. Are animated films your thing, or is this just a unique pick? Uh, I would say definitely animation is like my niche, but I, I definitely venture into all different genres but I have particular expertise in the animated category. Gotcha. Now, you don't sound like you're incredibly young. I mean, not that you sound old by any means, but here, let me take my foot out of my mouth at the beginning of the recording <laughs> I, am, I am pretty young. Uh, <laughs> um, 24, actually. Oh, okay. So, so a lot of these are movies you grew up with then. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had to experience the um, uh, a little too old male going into a movie theater alone to watch an animated film (laughs) you know what uh i definitely have um even just this year i went to watch um spies in disguise by myself and (laughs) that movie i was the only one in the theater i think so i dodged a bullet with that like people looking around but but definitely like buying my ticket and you know getting the looks from the high school kids is like what are you doing here watching spies in disguise (laughs) My my favorite was going to see uh, Pixar's Cars. Okay, and I I very I mean I was by myself, uh, you know, young man. We'll say young, uh, you know, single, going into the movie theater full of kids, and I'm like, 
it's okay. I, I, I fit in. And if I don't, I'm wearing this overcoat. So, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yikes. So I joke that the best thing to come about having a, a kid is that I can go to see animated films without getting a second look from wary parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's the bonus. So Spies in Disguise was this year? I, I Boy, this, this year I feels... So one of the questions I've been asking guests lately is, you know, obviously with COVID, movie theaters aren't really a thing. What's the last film you got to see at the theater? Well, I did go see Tenet in theaters, um, which is oh, did you? kind okay. of the cheat because that's the only movie really to be released. Maybe Unhinged has also been released recently. But uh, before that, uh, I saw Onward on a preview screening a week uh, before... It's actual, like, I think it was March or February. It was leap year day, February 29th that I saw onward and then had that big break. Yeah. I, that was the last one I saw in theaters, like the week before everything went nuts. My son and I went and saw onward. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, well, you know, at least it was a good movie to, to end on. (laughs) Yeah. I never would have guessed it would have been the last one for six months or whatever it was. I, I had this goal this year to go see 30 to 35 movies in theaters, um, and I had seven or eight uh, by that point. And yeah, so now I'm at nine. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you been taking advantage of any of the, the home rentals uh, of what would have been big screen releases? No, not really. Um, I mean, I've watched some movies like uh, Over the Moon just went to Netflix recently and I watched that. But um, right. But like Mulan, I wasn't super interested in. So I'm planning on just waiting until December when it moves to free, you know, so same. Yeah. Didn't buy Trolls World Tour. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to check out Invisible Man and then just because I never quit working like I was, quote unquote, essential personnel. Um, so I never got around to seeing it. And it finally came to HBO in the last month or two and I saw it there and I was like, man, I kind of wish I had paid the rental just to help support the studios. Yeah. Yeah. Invisible man. I heard that was really good actually. Yeah. It's amazing. I really enjoyed it. I watched it the same weekend as us. So I spent the weekend watching Elizabeth Moss get terrorized. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what are some of your favorite movies animated or otherwise favorite movies? Okay. Yeah. So I usually go with, I I like to kind of start with the ones outside of my animated genre because it can maybe relate a little more um, with a lot of people. And it's uh, like Gladiator is one of my all time favorites for sure. Russell Crowe. <laughs> okay. And then um, I would also say uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. Okay. And the Dark Knight with Heath Ledger. Those are probably my th- my three favorite live action movies. And then when I go animated. I usually go um, with like Aladdin is probably my favorite. Uh, Okay. So much nostalgia there. Best voice acting performance of all time, in my opinion, um, of Robin Williams as as a genie. And that movie is just phenomenal. And then also uh, the How to Train Your Dragon franchise. Oh, yeah. Huge fan of those. Yeah. I I somehow... I, I I don't know why, but I was not drawn to How to Train Your Dragon, and I saw the first one at home and immediately fell in love. In fact, oddly enough, a challenge that came through my old podcast was to watch it. Like, my listeners were like, how have you not seen this? Go watch it. Um, 
and I fell in love with it. And then I remember seeing the second one in the theater. It came out Father's Day weekend. And if you're familiar with the second movie in that franchise, mm-hmm. that's a weird film to see on Father's Day weekend. You know, it does occur <laughs> to me now. Okay, I didn't I didn't realize that was the week because I also saw that opening weekend and it did not occur to me at the time. And I saw it with my family. But you're right. Yeah, it's not exactly a... Uh, you know, the the one that you get to, I don't know. I think a, a great father-son story might be like Onward. Yes. For Father's Day weekend. This one, maybe not as much. A little sadder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, have you followed that franchise into any of the um, the series? Yeah. I, or just the movies? I did actually go back and watch um, the, yeah, Dragon's... Um, Race to the Edge Netflix series before the third movie came out. And I will say it, it's it's not nearly the quality of the movies, but if you're really into the movies, then you'll enjoy the show. If you're not into the movies all that much, the show will be elementary. It won't you won't probably be that into it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I really dig the design, especially of Toothless. Like the 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 visual style that they use for just the movie as a whole, but especially the dragons is just really, I think a a strength of that franchise. Yeah, totally. The detail they put into every individual dragon and just the lore of each one, like having its own strengths and weaknesses and abilities and all that stuff. And so really cool. Yeah. Well, also having a unique visual style of of sorts is your pick for this week. So let's go ahead and get into that. We are talking this week about 1999's The Iron Giant, written by Brad Bird back when he was not really well known. Uh, In fact, some of the reviews I looked at gave his credit as a a former Simpsons writer. Uh, But written by Brad Bird, Brent Forrester, and Tim McCanleys, based on the book The Iron Man by Ted Hughes, directed by Brad Bird, starring the voices of Eli Marenthal, Harry Connick Jr., Jennifer Aniston, Christopher McDonald, and Vin Diesel. ago, a SATCOM radar detected an unidentified object entering Earth's atmosphere. Invaders from Mars! Some assumed it was a large meteor or a downed satellite. This is no meteor, gentlemen. (gasps) This is something much more dangerous. So the question I always start with is, how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you sell them on wanting to see this film? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say this movie is just an absolute like feel good, uh, heart warmer with uh, great design, great characters, really clever writing. And it's it just leaves you at the end like smiling i feel like it's it's a it's a very heartfelt movie that um i think is, is just perfect for all ages uh so it separates itself i think from a lot of the the ages uh animated movies from back in the 1990s mid mid to late which i guess you know you got you got pixar and um which was making the first toy story movies at this point which of course those are classics but um right you know it's it separates itself uh with just the heart the, and the real story that it tells about like this is a time 
that it's portraying uh, that the United States was like really scared of the Russians during the Cold War and, you know, Sputnik had just launched into space. And um, so I just think it, the emotion it shows, it's uh, very real. It um, can relate to all of us in some way. Um, but yeah, very heartwarming. Also can give you some laughs. Yeah, and I find that description, I mean, I find that description absolutely accurate. It is a very heartwarming movie. But doing the research for this episode, it, it's a movie that's very much born out of tragedy. Yeah, totally. Um, that the the book, The Iron Man, written by Ted Hughes, as a form of trying to console his children after the death of their mother, who was Sylvia Plath. Uh, so any literary geeks out there will, will geek out over that. But So he wrote the original story as a kind of con- to try and console his kids. And then Brad Bird was in part inspired to do this movie because of his uh, sister's death, mm-hmm. that she was uh, um, killed by her husband in an act of gun violence. And his thought or his pitch for this film was, what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun? Yeah. And it definitely has, as you said, a very heartfelt, um, very heartwarming type movie. But I find it interesting that this is a creation that in many ways was born out of tragedy. Yeah, and I love what you said there. I I also ha- had uh, had heard that that phrase before. What if uh, a gun had a soul and decided they didn't want to be a gun anymore? That's that is just such an interesting thing. And, and the times in the movie where the giant um, says like, "I am not a gun," you know, it's just like, yeah. I don't know. It's it's heavy stuff for a for a so called kids movie, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I, when you brought up this movie, you know, uh, to come on the show with, I, I thought this is almost the perfect movie for the premise of this podcast hmm. because it is a movie where I, I, I think the giant himself is so iconic that people would recognize him. If you held up a picture, they would know who he is. But the movie did not do well. It was a, it was a commercial flop. Uh, it's built up a lot of its popularity on subsequent releases, you know, on DVD. Um, and so it is a movie that is kind of in the the cultural zeitgeist, and yet many people have not seen. In fact, when I finished watching this for the podcast, my first thought was, despite the number of people over years that I have told to see this movie, I'm not sure I had ever fully sat through the film before. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, it's. I, uh, I, I kind of stumbled across this one. I don't, I don't even know if I, this one, you, you asked if I like grew up with these animated movies and, and that's largely true. This one, I might've just stumbled across, um, as I was really getting into animation in like, honestly, in my college years, I just started exploring animation. I knew I was interested and this one, I might've just stumbled across at the perfect time where, you know, I could really understand it. Cause as a kid, maybe it's not one that I, I would have um, been able to, to get the full experience out of, but, um, it is crazy. I I definitely wanted to pick one for this show that was, um, a little more off the beaten path, uh, but still like, you know, a very, uh, high quality movie that could, uh, draw a lot of attention and also could, you know, a lot of your listeners probably haven't seen it, but could enjoy it themselves. So, yeah. So how old do you think you were when you when you said this when you found this movie? You said this wasn't one necessarily that was, you know, 
I, I don't want to say pushed upon you, but you weren't necessarily formally introduced to. Yeah, maybe like maybe like nineteen or so. I started collecting DVDs, um, and I think I picked up this DVD at our local uh, disc replay. Uh, not a sponsor, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was I started to just buy a bunch of DVDs that from there real cheap and of movies I wanted to check out, and um, I know I picked this one up at some point, so I'm assuming I was like nineteen at the time. Um, and just loved it. And I've probably seen it three or four times since. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the visual style, since that's kind of what I used to lead into, uh, our discussion, the visual style is so, so fantastic. I mean, it is such a strong part of this movie, the way that the giant looks, but also the way the humans look. I mean, the, the animation of, um, you know, the very, the very visual beatnik style of Dean, Mm -hmm. but you know, the fact that he has, he has, you know, five o'clock shadow without them doing the traditional way of creating that in a cartoon character, you know, it's just, it's represented and yet it's a a unique approach to that. And the, the very chiseled appearance of, uh, of Kent, you know, that, that, that this is a government agent through and through and, I love the way that he's he's portrayed the just the visual style of all of these different characters. Yeah, I I love the the word you used beatnik for uh for Dean cuz I had heard that word used like in I don't know Wikipedia or Google. I never knew what that meant until uh till the last time I watched it before um before today when I rewatched. I was I was like, what does this mean? And I looked it up and I, I was like, oh, that's so cool. It's like a whole genre of it was like a fad from the 1960s that uh right art and music and dark clothes comfortable clothes and yeah really neat though but yeah so dean mccoppin is i think a really cool like piece of history in itself like like referring you back to that time period that you're in and and yet his existence here is almost problematic because as you said, it's a, a art style uh, of the 60s, and this movie is set in 1957. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's a good point. But I, I think one of the things, many years ago, I directed a, a Shakespeare play uh, that we set in the 50s. I felt like setting it in like the 50s diner type thing was a, a cool environment for this play. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was doing my research for it, I discovered a lot of the things that we associate with the 50s. Like when you think the 50s and, and that style, a lot of it is from the early 60s and the late 50s and, and what we mentally have created uh, as far as this decade goes, a lot of it didn't necessarily fall into that decade, but over time has just become associated with it. Yeah, that's true. Dean could just be an early adopter, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I mentioned, you know, we we have the vocal cast of, uh, um, you know, Harry Connick Jr. playing Dean, uh, Eli Marenthal as uh, our, our, our boy hero. Uh, Jennifer Aniston's in here, Christopher McDonald, who uh, we previously discussed him on the show in our episode about SLC Punk. Okay. Uh, Vin Diesel says about 60 <laughs> words in the movie. Hey, more than it's for, of... uh, for all the Avengers movies combined. So <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about that. But some of the supporting 
uh, performances are also really cool. Like I, I, James Gammon plays uh, the foreman in this. Cloris Leachman is the teacher. Yeah. Uh, John Mahoney, uh, best known from Frasier, of course, is the general. And I didn't catch it when I was when I was watching it. Like the, it didn't stand out to me. But then when I saw the credits. Emma Emmett Walsh is in this, who we previously talked about with Blood Simple and Fletch. He voices the the fisherman at the beginning of the movie who first encounters the giant. Yeah, I've actually got a couple other from for you that you're gonna find really interesting. Um Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, I believe are their names. They're yes. they're uh famous, famous Disney animating legends. They didn't have a part in making this movie, but they were inspiration for Brad Bird um as he studied in uh cal arts and with a lot of the other disney animators um and yeah they were the train uh conductor the train engineer and fireman i believe so. yeah and and they were part of disney's original angry men group uh and i, I you know i mean it really is a tribute to how much brad bird revered these men because he also puts a reference to them in the incredibles yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, <laughs> I, I watched a, um, I watched the deleted scenes today for the first time and, um, Brad Bird talked about Cloris Leachman and her role as the teacher. And she is one of his favorite actors of all time, comedic actors or actresses, I should say. And, um, and she had five or six more lines than she just gets the one after he cut it down. But in the deleted scene, she has a few, a few comedic lines that in the classroom that set up the, the fact that Hogarth is um, super smart, but he's kind of hated by his classmates because they're all just so much slower than him. And the teacher uh, treats them a little differently. So, but she has some really good comedic lines that were unfortunately cut. I wish that was in the movie because that would make his tirade later on make a lot more sense Yeah, because he has that speech that he gives to Dean when he's had, you know, the, the, uh, the caffeine when he's (laughs) hopped up on caffeine about how the other kids, he's not smart. He just does the homework. And if they did the homework then they would understand everything too. And what's, why can't they just do the homework? And, and as a teacher, that moment really spoke to me, but it also, that would make more sense if the original Cloris Leachman stuff was in the movie as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and that is another, a good, uh, scene with some just clever, well-written comedy. I think this movie is, loaded with like the kind of comedy that just makes you chuckle because it's clever you know you're not going to die laughing but i think it's got some really clever wit to it oh yeah absolutely absolutely well let's let's look at what the critics had to say about this um because even though it was not a commercial success it was a critical success it sits at 96 percent on rotten tomatoes among the top critics there's only one negative review it sits at 85 percent at metacritic you know which is more recent numbers so it's still very highly esteemed the negative review that i pulled in this week comes from the um washington post by stephen hunter and it's a very interesting review. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go a little long on it, but uh, he, he starts out, The Iron Giant is a fabulous animated feature. Funny, touching, vivid, and best of all, humane. I hated it. It's brilliantly animated, and like the masterpieces of its genre, it transcends age groupings. Children will love it, and adults will be transfixed by its cleverness and its deft satire. Still, I hated it. 
And although I hated it, I enjoyed it very much. You will probably enjoy it, even if you hate it too. Which is a uh, weird way to kick off a review. Well, there's... <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but so I, I had to di- dive a little deeper into the review. And again, normally I try to pull in like a paragraph, but this is where he gets into the issue with the movie. Later on in the review, he writes, at a certain point, the Iron Giant, without missing a beat in charm or artistry, skews off into Tulwick. That's T-U-L-W-C, all caps, hmm. Tulwick. And that would be the usual left wing crap. I suppose the movies it is parodying would be considered Turwick, but they were made in the middle of the Cold War. This one was made in the toasty warm safety of our victory in that war. The artistic conceit of the Iron Giant is to invert the stereotypes of the 50s invasion from space movie with its paranoid, xenophobic overtones and anti-communist metaphoric structure. Think of it as The War of the Worlds or The Thing as directed by a member of the Hollywood Ten. As I say, Tulwick. Wait, and this guy worked for the Washington Post? This guy worked for the Washington Post. Now, as a as a former critic, uh-huh. you know, who, I mean, I got paid to review movies. Yeah. I take issue with this review from the standpoint that he is talking about the movies it is parodying. This is not parodying. It is not a parody. No. It is a, a, an homage to films of that era. It is using that commentary for satire, but there is a difference between satire and parody, and I take a little issue with him using that term. Yeah, that is interesting. (laughs) I I mean, I guess sometimes like a movie can just strike a nerve in a particular way with a particular person um, for one reason or another, and they're free to that opinion. But I do appreciate how he he acknowledged that though he's got some some beef with it, uh, he can acknowledge that it has some something that most people enjoy. Yeah. So the positive review comes from Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times. I always try to use Ebert when I can. And his review here is is quite, quite positive. Uh, the Iron Giant is still another example of the freedom that filmmakers find in animation. This would have been a $100 million live special effects movie, but it was made for a fraction of that cost because the metal man is drawn, not constructed. And here is a family movie with a message, a Cold War parable in which the Iron Giant learns from a little boy that he is not doomed to be a weapon because you are what you choose to be. The movie is set in the 1950s because that's the decade when science fiction seemed most preoccupied with nuclear holocaust and invaders from outer space. It includes a hilarious cartoon version of the alarming duck-and-cover educational film in which kids were advised to seek shelter from H-bombs by hiding under their desks. That was funny. And the villain is... Yeah, I know. And the villain is a Cold War... Sorry. And the villain is a Cold Warrior named Kent Mansley, voiced by Christopher McDonald, a G-man who, of course, sees the Iron Giant as a subversive plot and wants to blast it to pieces. Mm. Well, <laughs> Ebert also uh, I'm seeing on the the wiki page uh, looks like compared later in the review uh, the the story to stuff of Hayao Miyazaki, which that's he did right there. Yeah, I, I that was I almost pulled that paragraph. Let me go ahead and hit it since you brought it up. Uh, he does say, like the new Japanese animated films, The Iron Giant is happy to be a real movie in everything but live action. There are no cute little animals and not a single musical number. It's a story plain and simple. Uh, the director, Brad Bird, is a Simpsons veteran whose visual look here, much more complex than The Simpsons, resembles the clear line technique of Jap- Japan's Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, my neighbor Totoro. Yeah. It works as a lot of animation does to make you forget from time to time that these are moving drawings because the stories and characters are so compelling. 
Yeah, high praise. What, do you agree? Uh, I mean, I, I think the style, like you can see, it's it's the idea of a movie that means something. It doesn't need to be fanciful and have, you know, romanticized elements and characters that are that are clearly there to sell dolls or whatever. You know, like Hayao Miyazaki's stories are always, they always have a deeper meaning and they... Uh, although his are much more abstract, I feel like he always, uh, he often has the the imagination aspect in there um, and some darker themes as well. So I don't agree in that aspect because this movie is, even though, you know, there's a huge robot, it's much more down to earth than the classic Hayao Miyazaki films. I would say you could, there's a couple of them in there, like The Wind Rises or, or a couple other ones that... Um, are a little more down to earth, but the ones he's known for are much more uh, abstract and imaginative than the iron giant. Yeah. I mean, I'm not as, as big a, I'm not as aware of Miyazaki as I probably should be. I've seen uh, three or four of his films and I love them. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed them immensely, but I probably need to expose myself to a little bit more of his, his, his work. Yeah, that, he's as a as a guy who's just really gotten into animation. He was like the last uh, domino to fall for me, to be honest. Like, uh, a- anime <laughs> is not something I was into growing up at all. Um, but the last like two years, I've I've started to, started to get into it more and more. I started to see, uh, you know, Spirited Away and uh, My Neighbor Totoro and um, Princess Mononoke on people's lists of top you know, 100 animated films. And I'm like, okay, I've got to watch these then if these are the top few films that on some people's lists. Um, and even your name coming out more recently is the top as one of the, you know, best of the best in anime. So. And that one's come up. That one's come up on the podcast a couple of times and I still have not seen that. One. Oh, it's phenomenal. It is. It is a great, uh, definitely, uh, caught me by surprise i'll say i was expecting a cute little body swap rom-com and then it and it turned out to be so much more than that <laughs> well I, one of the things i really like about the iron giant um and ebert of course hits on it in his review about you know it being um that you you are you can be you are what you want to be yep. right um is the way that that is delivered in the movie that dean says that line fairly early on, you know, that, that you are who you choose to be, but it is not done. So it is not broadcast that that is the theme of the movie. There are events later on that reference it, um, half-heartedly until Hogarth finally says it flat out to the giant, but otherwise, it's kind of this nice, subtle delivery of the film's theme rather than what a lot of animated films would do, which is just hit the audience over the head with it. Yeah. No, that's that's totally accurate, I'd say. It's uh, it's not like even as I was watching today, I was trying to th- I was like thinking the whole time, like, so what really is the the main theme? You know, like I was trying I was trying to narrow it down between a few different things and. Um, I would say that idea of like, yeah, you don't have to be what you're made to be. So the theme more, more along the lines of the arc of the robot and how it relates to Hogarth maybe, but, um, there's, there's some other themes in there that could, you know, uh, could be taken as well from, from this movie. 
you want to uh, talk about those? Well, I mean, like you could go, you could talk about more along the lines of like the xenophobic uh, aspect of like the movie and, and Mansley's obsession, or um, you could talk about like the theming of, uh, you know, a single mother who's lost her uh, husband in the war. And that's also like a story of her raising her kid. And that's more of a side, a side theme, but like it's there and that's how it can, that theme can relate to, to some mothers a little bit, even though she's um, doesn't take front and center in the plot all that much. But there's a lot of other things that certain people in, in certain aspects of life can uh, relate to outside of just Hogarth, who is kind of a, a outcast, but um, trying to fit in. And what what you just brought up kind of illustrates what I was talking about, though, about the subtlety of this movie. Hogarth's dad is never explicitly addressed. Yeah. He's just not there. Yeah, yeah. And I saw this in the deleted scenes as well. They had a scene um, that was going to be early on the introduction to Hogarth and Annie. Um, they were going to be in the uh, truck, and he would have laughed, and she basically said, um, you laugh just like your father, and and Hogarth says, I, I miss him. And she says, I, I do too. And that's, that's all that would have been. But they ended up cutting that scene. Um, the only homage to his father is uh, during that scene where he's having that stare down with Kent Mansley. Uh, and Kent, when Kent Mansley eventually falls asleep there. Um, and it kind of pans over to his clock, uh, Hogarth's clock. And next to his clock, there's a photo of his dad, who is a military pilot. So you can assume that that's how he died. Yes, yeah, see that that I I miss him. I do too. That's the kind of saccharine thing I would expect mm-hmm. in a movie like this. Right. And it it not being here is something I really appreciate about this movie. So I, I feel like they kind of dodged a bullet by not putting that in by choosing to delete it. They managed to make I think a stronger film. I mean, there's there's so much of this world's story that we don't get. Yeah. You know, the fact that they flat out do not tell you where the giant comes from. Yeah, that's true. And even like in the uh, extended, I guess I don't know what they call it. They call it like remass or something. The, the the cut that was released more recently has like an extra scene where uh, you see this dream that the giant's having, and he's like, he's he's some kind of war machine from some kind of alien civilization. That's that's all you know, really. But like that, you don't know what you know how he got sent or you know, there's more of there's more giants and there's but you don't know where they are or where they come from that's all you get and you don't get that in the original cut though i don't think no and in fact i read when i was reading the trivia for the movie i read about that and i was like did i miss something because i don't remember the giant having a dream yeah. so i'm glad you actually just saved me from worrying that i had like inadvertently fallen asleep during a movie that I was really enjoying because I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the, I think, two scenes that is added in the the, the re-release uh, of the DVD. Yeah, I mean, it's, I just, I'm I'm impressed with the world building that they do. I mean, we've, we've already talked about the fact that it is set in, you know, the 50, 57, the height of the, you have the Cold War going on. You have the Red Scare to some degree going on. I mean, with the, just in the first few minutes, you have a Red Menace comic in Hogarth's room when he's uh, when he's you know going through his stuff. There's a, a, a fi- the film that's showing in school is called Atomic Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, when he shows his comic books 
to the giant. It's Mad Magazine, The Spirit, Boy's Life, which is meh, uh, Superman, and Atomo, yeah. The Metal Menace. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like... It, it it very much builds on this I this scare that was going on, and yet it confines us to that world. It doesn't attempt to take us out of it. And I, and I love that Kent isn't even worried that the giant is from another planet. He doesn't care. When he lists, you know, he says, you know, we don't know where it comes from. China, uh, Russians, Martians, it doesn't matter. It's a threat. And it's like, wow, you really just put outer space in the same list as, <laughs> as Russians. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's, I mean, that is interesting. I, it, I can't, like, it seems like he is mostly preoccupied with his own, like, career uh oh yeah and that's he hates being there he says he 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 tells them uh you know they say you know it's a big thing and he says no big things happen in big places he doesn't (laughs) want to be there and as soon as we wrap this up i will get back to them or something like that right and then half his car is missing yeah (laughs) it is and and let's let's just absolutely be honest. His name alone shows just how much of an ass he is. <laughs> Ouch! My first name is actually Kent. I didn't mean that. <laughs> yeah, Mansley, no, no, really? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right, Mansley. It is. It does kind of have like a that kind of effect. And, and I wonder, like, what his actual role is, because like he's with the government, but he's not like part of the military like is is he some kind of extraterrestrial or just like even i don't even know is he what is his what is his role in your opinion i assumed like cia um i mean i don't it was the cia even around in the late i guess it was around in the late 50s yeah um but I, I assumed something like that, but then as the, like when he first appears, that's what I assume because he's full of such bravado and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think as the film progresses and he starts kind of falling apart and the way he, he's really being outsmarted by this t- little kid yeah. uh, and, and he's letting this little kid get the best of him. I think he works a desk job somewhere. <laughs> I think at the end, like the general, like who apparently does have the the where the ability to to fire Mansley tells him to get like he can go back and clean off his desk or something. That's right. He, he does, does say that. that. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. I and, and, I mean the relationship between him and the general is um is never a strong one. I mean when he first contacts the general to say that there's something going on here, the general doesn't want to believe him and is like you need you need proof. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's not a good relationship. So whatever he does, the general doesn't like him. Yep. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) But he's so well played. I mean, that's, I, I, I have to say, you know, I, you can't put him up there in the ranks of Disney villains because they're all so iconic, but he is a pretty strong animated villain. He is. He's just this creepiness, like how he's always like, I love the montage of the different, like words he just uses to address uh hogarth hey sport hey champ hey buddy you know (laughs) just like there's this whole montage of the different times he's trying to dig and get hogarth to share information and the different things lengths that he goes to with hogarth it is uh i don't know i'm trying to think of a 
a villain that he reminds me of, but I can't really think of one right now, honestly. That montage that you're mentioning, though, reminds me of Tommy Lee Jones in uh, Men in Black. Okay. When Will Smith tells him, you know, I, I, you know, I've got a name. I don't go by. He's like, hey, whatever sport. Yep, slick. We do whatever you, you know. And it's like he's he's jive, just jabbing at him with these uh, nicknames, and I kind of feel like that's the same thing Kent is doing, except for Kent is attempting to ingratiate himself and it isn't working. Right. Like I don't think he, I think he's so bad with kids. He doesn't even realize that what he's really doing is antagonizing Hogarth <laughs> more than he's succeeding in bin, building any kind of bond. Well, right before he eats the, uh, the cocoa lacks in the, uh, the diner, uh, he, it seemed like he was like trying to, you know, act like they were buddy, buddy and, and whatever and exploring the the area but uh <laughs> but that turned quickly and he started uh you know losing his patience and then the uh, coco lax kicked in perfect <laughs> moment <laughs> well and that's that and that's that speech i was talking about about not caring where he comes from that's right yeah you know that it's yeah yeah the the coco lax has perfect timing and i and i frankly i love that montage as well of you know once he has to bail and that gives Hogarth the the way to get away. And then you see him trying to track down evidence and, you know, he's, he is asking questions and then asks you the, the outhouse. And then he's out in the woods and doesn't have anywhere to go, but behind a rock. Yeah. And I just, I thought that was a very funny and it, it is toilet humor without being toilet humor. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Right. There's nothing like stated like ever in about that about the laxative or about him being on the toilet a lot. Or I know that that, that was another deleted scene too, was like the next morning there was going to be like a whole nother day in the time frame. was that he was going to go to like kitchen in the morning and, and Annie would ask how his night was. And he'd be like, I was on the toilet all night, <laughs> but they cut that as well. And I think that's for that reason of like, no, they're not explicit toilet humor. It's just like, you know, visual, you can insinuate like, and draw it out yourself, draw the, draw the comedy out of it yourself, uh, of what you're seeing. Right. Right. And I think that's a very clever approach to take. I think, um, you know, I mean, animated movies so often want to go the juvenile route in order to, in order to cater to the young audience. Mm -hmm. And I, I really love it when a film doesn't feel the need to do that. And I, even though it is technically toilet humor, I don't think Iron Giant is stooping down to that level. No, yeah. I think it, it serves, it serves the plot. And I think that's what makes the difference. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's some really just clever stuff in there. It's hard. I can't even, it's not the stuff that like you remember either, I feel like, but I just, as I watched it again today, I was just like, you know, chuckling at, at some of the, the witty, uh, I love the TV show Phineas and Ferb. Uh, for the, for the <laughs> same reason that I feel like their comedy is more clever, witty, clean uh, humor. And then I, I felt like there was some of that in, in this movie for sure. That's a good connection to draw. I, I think that if Phineas and Ferb is on the same level as this, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Maybe Phineas and Ferb <laughs> doesn't have quite the, uh, the like message underlying it, but <laughs> no, no. Hey, this is Kate. I'm a forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, and I collect stories. Everything from true crime to trauma to parenthood. There's a lot more in common between depression and sociopathy, or between serial killers and podcasters, than you might think. 
Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at IWBpodcast.com and IWBpodcast on social media. So a couple other things that stood out to me. Well, no, actually, before we change topics, let's talk about how just how vile Mansley is, though. The the scene where he talks about um, what they could do to Annie, you know, how what they could do to make her look like a bad parent to the point that they would be in the right to take Hogarth away from her. Yeah, that's vile behavior. Yeah. Like, there are Disney villains that wouldn't cross that line, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's the first time when he really kind of comes out of that um, character he's trying to pretend to be to get information and just reveal his cards of, like, I am willing to do whatever it takes to get uh, this information, get this proof. So Yeah. All right, so one of the other uh, parallels that Ebert draws in his review that I didn't read is he talks about... Uh, it being kind of an E.T. type movie. And I, I, I always try to go into these and watch the movie before I look at any of the reviews. But I do have to pay attention to the fact that I wrote down E.T. references several times in my notes. Hmm. First of all, have you seen uh, E.T.? I have seen E.T. Ironically, I was, okay. I was actually at Universal Studios this uh, this morning and <laughs> and I rode, I rode the E.T. ride. So, yeah, I live in Orlando, but... That that's interesting that you mentioned that because the two guys I was with have not seen E.T. Uh, and I told them they need to watch it. But yes, I have seen E.T. It's been a been a few years, but I, I can kind of see that. I can see that comparison. Well, I mean, like befriending the alien yeah. and he's out there trying to take the, the picture of him um, in, in a very similar manner to how Elliot is with E.T. Um, you know, once the alien is befriended somebody else like Gertie dresses ET up, you know, and plays, plays dress up with him here. We have Dean using him for arts and crafts, Yes, you know, and, and of course the, the government being the big bad at the end. Yeah. In a great scene. Well, that was right after the scene with where he, th- where Mansley threatens um, to, you know, uh, make Annie look like an unsuitable parent. And then he basically uh, knocks him out with, the cloth of whatever and yes drugs drugs yeah yeah, drugs him to sleep and then and then it's like that doesn't even he basically says this is all a dream and it doesn't even matter because when he wakes up he's just like the government's coming in the morning so it's like confirming that it was not a dream actually so i didn't actually get that part it's like what was the i didn't even think about that he undermined his own ruse there what was the point of telling him it was a dream if you're just gonna confirm that it wasn't right after he wakes up I didn't even think about that. <laughs> but the scene that follows in the morning is so clever and fun to watch uh, him bring the government in. And he's so excited to show him the the Iron Man. And Dean plays it so cool. I love Dean. Oh, my God. And he shows, yes. shows him the it, what it is is the Iron Giant. But he's like dressed up as if he's just an art sculpture. He's no no big giant alien robot thing. So. Right. Now, how, how do you feel about Connick Jr.? Because I, he seems to be a very polarizing figure in films for a lot of people. You know, I don't have a lot of experience with him. I was actually looking up some of his uh, some of his like notable stuff. And he's more of a musician 
Um, right. He's a jazz musician. Yeah. So I, I'm not super familiar with him, though. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, most people know him from Independence Day. He plays uh, Will, uh, Will Smith's wingman okay. in that movie. Uh, if you have not seen Copycat, I highly recommend that for Connick's performance alone. It is so chilling and creepy. Hmm. And it's a great Sigourney Weaver part as well. Okay. Um, it's, it's a pretty good, if you like thrillers, it's a, it's a bit formulaic, but also that's kind of its point at times. So I, I've enjoyed it. Now, it's been years since I've seen it, but I enjoyed it back when I was first introduced to it. Okay, I'll have to check that one out. All right, so let's talk a little bit about The Giant, because as cute as he is and as funny as he is and all these gags and his, his disattached hand watching the TV and, and, you know, that kind of thing, he is at his core a weapon. Yeah. This is true. And kind of a frightening one. <laughs> it, it does get kind of dark and a little bit scary at, at times, you know, when, like, there is thoughts that there could be peril, for sure. Yeah. But what I love uh, is the amount of emotion they're able to portray with this big computer-animated goofball. The, the sheer emotion when he thinks... Hogarth is dead, mm -hmm. and that's what lets him finally click over after having several instances where he's becoming this weapon. Uh, and I want to talk about that, but also just the emotion of that scene and the the way they animated him is so. It, well, it goes back to how you originally described the movie. It is very heartfelt. It is it is very heartwarming that they had this relationship, but at the same time, it's tragic in that that's what he allows to let this programming take him over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it really is. That's where that's probably the emotional climax, or that, or or um, when uh, Hogarth kind of runs after him and eventually gets him to. Well, I guess probably the. Probably the missile would be the emotional climax, but they're all, they're all the emotional climax. It's all there, <laughs> and, and it's really tough. Like because right before that, he's got Hogarth. They're flying through the air, avoiding these military jets, and um, well, and he's and and the thing I love about that scene when he's he's falling and suddenly he can fly is I felt like Hogarth on screen responding to the fact that he can fly <laughs> is exactly what I was feeling as an audience member. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. He can fly. This is amazing. <laughs> Look at this. And Hogarth is saying all of that. <laughs> I, I don't remember what my first reaction was when I noticed he could fly. It, I, it was probably more along the lines of, of course he can fly. I mean, He's from outer space, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the, the thing that makes the, like a subtle thing that makes, I think the switch when he just lets himself go into like weapon mode a little even heavier is when he's fighting it so hard in the sky, you know, his eyes are going red and he's fighting it. He's like, no, I'm not going to be a weapon. Um, but then once he thinks that Hogarth is dead, he just lets it happen. And I, I find the way it's portrayed really interesting also because it almost seems like it not only overtakes him, but it almost it almost seems like a Jekyll and Hyde type thing where he doesn't have any memory of what things are going on mm -hmm. when he's a weapon. Because when it very first happens in the the junkyard, when Hogarth has the the little toy sparkly gun the the look on Giant's face after he comes out of weapon mode is like, what the hell just happened? Yeah, that's a good point. A little, I mean, 
since we were talking about uh, How to Train Your Dragon earlier, not too dissimilar from when Toothless was under that mind control uh, in the second the second movie. Yeah, yeah. So. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think the, the subtleties, and the, the not the subtleties necessarily, but the nuances of the animation in this film are just, I mean, I love Disney films, but... I I would almost put this above a lot of Disney animated films just in the quality of storytelling and the nuance of the animation and the visual style. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's crazy this movie came right after I believe Quest for Camelot in I mean made by similar teams of animators uh for Warner Brothers and this is just I also watched Quest for Camelot like relatively recently as well, which is kind of interesting. Um I've never seen that one. <laughs> you know, I had some I had some nostalgia because I knew that we had it on VHS as a kid and I saw it on somewhere free, maybe Netflix somewhere. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch it. And I'll say the music is still pretty catchy. Like I, I remember that being true, but the the story just makes no sense. Like it's just there's just so many things about the writing of the story of Quest for Camelot. It's just like why does this happen? Like you just skip this part to this part, and like the bad guy, like the our our main character and her companions can can keep the bad guy at bay for the their majority of their quest, and then at the end he's like destroying everybody, and nobody can stop him. It's like you know just stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. So that movie's not great. Um, and then you get to this movie, which is just, you know, if I were to, I still haven't done this and I really want to rank like my top 100 animated movies of all time. This would, this would probably be top, I'll, I'll say top 20, maybe top 30 in that range. Definitely. Um, so it's, it's up there with, with some of my all time favorites. Well, it's interesting that you bring up quest for Camelot because my understanding is the failure of that movie is part of why this movie ended up kind of the way it did. Um, you mentioned way early on in our conversation here uh, about it not being <clears throat> made for toys, mm. you know, made with the marketing intent. And Warner Brothers barely marketed this film. You know, Disney films will get a teaser trailer a year out. They didn't put up marketing until like four months out. Yeah. Um, they didn't attempt to do toy tie-ins or Happy Meal tie-ins or stuff because they got burned so badly on Quest for Camelot. And a lot of people think that's part of why this movie failed at the box office. But I also, to some degree, wonder if that's not why it doesn't have some of those forced elements in it. Yeah, I... He- I definitely can see that for sure. Like the the marketing in this film is probably the biggest reason why like it, it obviously is not a failure in terms of the making of the movie. So it's really there's really no excuse for it to like have been such a financial failure that it was. But one thing I know about Brad Bird is that he loves the freedom uh, that the studios can just be hands off and let him make his movie. And that's why he went to Warner brothers because Disney and though Disney and DreamWorks might give him a lot more money. They're going to take control of his movie, not let him take it the the direction he wants it. Um, because that's all they care about is the money. And so though this movie that, I mean, that's probably a big reason it didn't have the financial successes because Brad Bird got to make his movie, even though it's maybe not going to, uh, you know, attract the, the masses that a Disney formulaic movie will, have 
his movie that he made is heartfelt. It's touching and it means a lot uh, to him. And you can tell that like just just in the writing of it. That's a really good point that you bring up because, I mean, he his, of course, his breakout film that makes him a lot more well-known is Incredibles, right. but that wasn't done for Disney. That was done for Pixar before Pixar and Disney were a conglomeration. You know, that was back when Pixar was independent and had a distribution deal with Disney. Yeah. Um, so that gives him the freedom to do what he wants to do. That's a really... And I know for a fact that when he was brought on board Ratatouille, that that was one of his stipulations is... I'm going to change the movie to make the movie I want to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I haven't watched a, a failure from him, to be honest. So, uh, <laughs> wait, did he do Tomorrowland? Was he the director of that? Oh, he was. Okay. He was the director of Tomorrowland. That one, yes. That's not great. I'll say that. Um, yeah, he did Tomorrowland. I think he did one of the Mission Impossible movies. He did the fourth one. Yeah, uh, I believe that's Ghost Protocol. All right, so before we're done, I'll ask you in a second if there's what you what we haven't touched on that you want to touch on. The climax of the film, what I of course as you said before, there's lots of little climaxes, but the the missile. So again, Manly being such a jerk that he sets off the the bomb. He's going to uh bomb into obliteration an American city or town in order to try and get this 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 alien yeah. and the giant flies up to meet it to stop it from destroying all the people he is choosing not to be a weapon he is choosing to be superman mm. and it that that moment still is really touching like even if i had not seen the whole movie before which i must have i knew this moment uh-huh. and it is still very powerful yeah at the same time I cannot help but feel like this had to be an influence on how Joss Whedon did the climax of the Avengers. It feels very similar in appearance and in feeling to Tony Stark flying to get the missile and put it through the wormhole. It is a sacrificial act on both parts. And I find it hilarious that the Iron Giant is doing this saying Superman. (laughs) That is ironic. And yet... The closest recreation we have to it in live action is Iron Man doing it. Yeah, that is, that's ironic. I, I, I definitely made that connection, and I definitely was thinking to myself that uh, when he was like when I watched today that he could have probably just done what Iron Man did, and and instead of just going and letting it hit him to explode, maybe rerouting it. Uh, yeah. Um, but. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that is such a well done scene from the Iron Giant. And I would be interested to see if that had uh, an influence um, on it had to have Avengers. It had to have. I mean, I just feel I don't know that for a fact, but it just if you watch the two scenes. Yeah, it feels pretty darn. It really is. Even even all the way back to like someone calling in the missile and being like, we're all going to die here. You know, like even all the way back to that, man, that is that is a good point. And they, they do that whole scene so well of it's like it's even a little comedic moment where Kent Mansley's like, fire the missile. And and the general's like, the missile is lo- targeted to the robot's location. Where's the robot located? Right, <laughs> right on top of us. <laughs> Just like that. And then at that moment when he's like, you're going to die for your country, Manly. And 
I don't know. It's just all so well done. Screw, screw our country. I want to live. Yeah. Like there went his patriotism, which again is why I think he had a desk job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Such a great final sequence. All right, what have we not chatted about that you want to make sure we talk about? Ah, oh, man, I don't know. I was thinking about like the town in general of like Rockwell, Maine, and how beautiful they they make that town. But the idea of like the snowing to the like I, trying to figure out what the time frame of the movie is too. Uh, I don't know if you got this from watching it, um, from rewatching it, but I was trying to figure out the time frame that the movie takes place. Uh, and it's like a few days, right, from when the the uh, robot hits the Earth to when he explodes. Um, but then the time frame to like the end, because it's like snowing when that <laughs> happens. But then at the end, he it's not snowing. It's sunny. And Dean has made this robot uh, statue in the park. So it's been a little bit of time. Well, and, star- and started a relationship with Hogarth's and mom. Started a re- yeah, and now Hogarth's <laughs> mom calls him honey. So, you know, it's been a little bit of time, probably a couple months, I'm guessing. And then that is, at this point, it's when uh, Hogarth gets the screw from the giant. And, then, the, and then, the, then you see the screw, spoiler alert, but you see the screw kind of getting pulled back towards the giant, signifying that he's alive and he's reassembling himself out in Iceland, actually. So I guess it's, if it's months, years, I don't know that that this like the giant's head has just been sitting out in, on a glacier in Iceland. I don't know. That that's always <laughs> confused me. I, I I assumed. Uh, I mean, the main story takes place over a couple of days. That's pretty obvious. Um, you know, when he jumps in the water, it's cold, so it's fall. Uh, so the idea of it starting to snow it isn't too far removed from that. I can totally see that. I assumed that the statue and that kind of stuff is the spring. Um, so for, so a couple of months later, that, that's my assumption. I don't have anything to to found that on. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) And it is Maine. So if it's like, if he's swimming and I guess this is like maybe August, maybe it could snow in August in Maine, probably. I think it says it's October at some point. Okay. Man. So. Bold move, (laughs) Hogarth swimming in Maine in October. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) All right, before we're done, we've got a couple of uh, closing games here. The first is The Algorithm Says. Uh, This is a list of various movies that algorithms say you will like because you liked The Iron Giant. So this is like a lightning round of your responses to these other movies. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you not see how in the world they're connected? That sort of thing. All right, sweet. Um, Part of the reason I asked you early on uh, if you were an anime guy is be- uh, animation guy is because most of these are animated. Perfect. So. <laughs> I've, I've probably seen them. All right. First up, we have The Incredibles. Uh, yes, absolutely. Love it. Favorite Pixar movie. Okay. Coraline. You know, uh, that one I think I was very scared of when I watched as a kid. <laughs> That's not surprising. <laughs> Uh, Chicken Run. Chicken Run. Chicken Run. Uh, that one's funny. Um, has some heart, but it's not not one of my favorites. Okay. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Also not one of my favorites. Interesting that they've got Coraline and Nightmare Before Christmas as two of these. Uh, ho- maybe yeah. it's a Halloween-themed uh, <laughs> algorithm thing. <laughs> um, Rango. Rango. Uh, that one is definitely... I would say one of the most unique animated films I've ever watched. Um, but uh, I would say I, I don't think it probably should have gotten the award for best animated feature that it got. It's not, not, not 
the not a expertly made movie in my opinion. Okay. Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh, now that one is an expertly made movie. I love Kubo and the Two Strings. <laughs> that movie's so good. I agree. Yes, that's my favorite of this list. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Actually, I haven't seen this one, but I've heard it's fantastic. So I need to, I need to watch that. Wes Anderson, I'm I'm pretty sure, right? Yes. Yeah. Wes Anderson doing animation. Yeah. It's it's totally worth checking. Okay. Out. Yeah. Okay. Astro Boy. Astro Boy. Uh, I, this one was largely forgettable. I think I'm pretty sure I watched that when I was in my young teens and didn't didn't think much of it. Okay. Home. Uh, I actually kind of like this one. I, I mean, it, Home's got. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to say it was forgettable too. No, Home's got some. <laughs> home's got some bad reviews, but it's I. It's actually based. I don't read much, but it's based on a book called The True Meaning of Smack Day, and I actually read this book for some odd reason in like middle school. And then when I, I stumbled into the movie home in theaters because fast and furious seven was sold out. And, and so I stumbled <laughs> into home instead and I found, I realized that it was based on this book and I'm like, this is actually so much fun. So I enjoy that movie. You're giving me traumatic flashbacks. I was working at a movie theater in that same era when it was <laughs> fast and furious. I was like, Oh yeah, that was totally when I was uh, working in that theater. Funny. All right. Last one. Robots. Oh, robots. Yeah, that's a that's like the knockoff of um oh, what was the I don't know. It makes me think of like Treasure Planet era. Yes. I love Treasure Planet a lot more. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did not like robots yeah. much at all. Even with Robin I think it's Robin Williams and Ewan McGregor, yeah, if I remember correctly. Yeah, man. I think I've seen that one once. What a waste. Yeah. All right. We always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Absolutely. All right, number one, when the giant's hand is watching television, Bird wanted a specific visual reference playing on the television, but couldn't secure the rights and had to resort to a Maypo commercial instead. What was supposed to play there? A, a Max Fleischer Superman cartoon, B, a Disney commercial for Tomorrowland, C, a commercial for them, or D, a performance of Purple People Eater? I'm pretty sure I heard this one once. I think it's the commercial for Tomorrowland. It is, absolutely. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think the edition that you're talking about, the signature edition, has that back in it. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why. I... But I could be wrong. Okay. All right. Number two, other deep voice actors were considered for the giant before Vin Diesel was cast. Which of the following was not a contender for the role? A, Peter Cullen. B, Frank Welker. C, Morgan Freeman. Or D, James Earl Jones. I'd go with Frank Welker. He's more of a he's more of a noisemaker. I, I, I wouldn't call him like a voice deep voice actor. No, he was actually a consideration uh, okay. for it. It was Morgan Freeman that was not considered, but Peter Cullen, Frank Welker, both of course best known or well known for the Transformers cartoons. True, yeah, uh, and James Earl Jones, known for you know being James Earl Jones. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah those were all contenders. Yeah. And as was Sean Connery. Oh man, Sean Connery's a robot. That could be interesting. All right, number three, Brad Bird was personally involved in animating one of the scenes of the movie. Which scene? A, the giant getting electrocuted at the power station. B, Hogarth's caffeinated speech to Dean after having espresso. C, the giant's dive into the lake and the ensuing mess. Or D, Kent's speech to Hogarth at the dinner at the diner and its messy interruption. I, I hope it was Hogarth's uh, coffee-infused speech. It was, right. absolutely. That's the one he was personally involved in animating. <laughs> 
All right, and number four, while the film was a critical success, it is considered a box office bomb in part due to its competition in its opening weekend. What movie was it up against? A, The Sixth Sense, B, October Sky, C, The Blair Witch Project, or D, Disney's Tarzan? Okay, so I know Tarzan came out in 99, but I don't know what month, and I know that Iron Giant was in August. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense and Iron Giant opened the same All weekend. Right. Now, there are some people who say that's why it bombed, and then there are some people who point out that the Sixth Sense drew its audience over a period of weeks and word of mouth, so they don't think that that was the reason. So there's a couple different theories there. Interesting. All right, man, uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I co-host a show called the Banter I Hardly Know Her Podcast, so you can find that on Spotify, Apple Pods, pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts where... Uh, myself and my co-host Wes, we basically talk movies, TV, um, other random things that uh, are hopefully entertaining to you all and do rankings, drafts, top tens um, and interviews with industry vets. We actually have an interview coming out this week. Uh, I don't know when your episode's coming out, but the uh, this week as as we're recording um, with Jason Marsden, who's a fairly prominent um, voice actor. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. Um, and you can find us on Instagram at banter underscore pod and Facebook at, uh, banter pod. I think it's just banter pod on Facebook. Fantastic. I definitely need to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're huge goofy movie fans. So getting that's my kind of people right, right there. <laughs> on the show is, is a dream. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for picking Iron Giant. As I said, I, 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 I had to have seen it before. I had to have. But it was nice to revisit it. And this is the perfect have-not-seen-this kind of movie that people should see. It's totally worth the time. Great. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about The Iron Giant, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter. On Facebook, we're at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. You are Kermit the Frog! And, and you love me. You want to marry me. You want to have children with me. With you? In love with a pig? <laughs> Wait till I tell the guys in marketing. <laughs> Maybe you expect me to go hog wild? <laughs> Maybe perhaps you could bring home the bacon, huh? <laughs> All the sounds of love. Sweet. Oink, oink. <laughs> This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Perry for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsh, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.